Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Long, long river of time. You've healed me in too many days. No regrets, no confusion. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden Podcast. My name is Gabrielle Hakoen, and I am here, as always, with my BFF and co-host. Hi, I am cult survivor and cult expert, Sadie Carpenter. Hey, Sadie, how are you doing today? I am I'm doing pretty good. I'm feeling fantastic. Um, oh, I'm glad to hear that. Today is a Q&A episode. Uh, we are, we, we have gotten your questions. We have, uh, we, we're going to answer them today. A lot of great questions, Sadie. Yeah. The, the questions, this round of questions was really good. Yeah. And we're really excited to answer them. Um, but before we get into that, the leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, then there's numerous things that you can do to support us. Number one, you hit that like button, that follow button, that subscribe button. Wherever you get your podcast, you'll get the new episode every Monday morning. If you just can't wait until Monday and you want the new episode on Sunday, you can subscribe to an extended ad-free patron-only version, and that is located on our Patreon uh, at patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you want to do that, you can support our show by doing that. You can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. Both of these places, great places to discuss the show, fundamentalism, religion, share memes, whatever it is that you like uh, with regards to this show and its related topics. 
Is there anything else that we need to do before we thank the patrons, Sadie? I don't think so. Okay, well, uh, Sadie, do you want to thank our Faith Promise Missions and I Gave It All to Your Patrons? Sure, I can do that. First up, we have our I Gave It All to Your Patrons, Kathleen Moncrief and Melissa Mosley. Thank you so much to Kathleen and Melissa. Our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons are Alex P. Oh, that's a new one. Alex P is new. Alex P is new. Thank you, You're Alex welcome. P. Alex Todd, Alicia Guild, Ali Allen, Anisha Patel, Brittany Brooke Tully, Krissa Crystal Patterson, Dear Ethan Hansen the Musical, Eleanor Donahue, Amory Fairlosser, Enchanted Fairy 1389, which is also wow. new. Enchanted Welcome. Fairy 1389. Hell yeah. That's my favorite Enchanted Fairy. Oh, good. Glad the, to hear uh, it. En Enchanted Fairy 1390 is just like one too far. <laughs> just uh, <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Too many Enchanted Fairies. 1389 <laughs> is the perfect number of Enchanted Fairies. Hannah Ross, Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane, Janine Callen, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo. Jonna K. Terwee, Kristen Marie, Lauren Vanderwall, Linda Morgan, Lorena Watson, MC Crunchwrap, hashtag the boy who cried sauce, Madeline Cusick, Marlena Stuve, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arndt, Rob the Methodist, Scooby Sleuth, Stephanie Johnson, Susie, Tara McNamara, Tiffany Enderby, and Wes the Cowboy. Wonderful. I love all of our patrons. All of our faith promise missions to your patrons and or i gave it all to your patrons um one fun thing that's going to be coming up for our patrons uh actually a few fun things that are coming up for our patrons sadie has uh, a special sadie only episode that she, she just wanted to put out that's like a a short thing do you want to talk about that real quick yeah i heard about a certain TikTok scammer who is not a cult just a scammer, but used cult-like methods in order to do their scamming. So I want to talk about that on the Patreon. It's not quite cult-related enough for the main feed, but I'm going to put together a little presentation about that. I hope it'll be out by the time this episode is out, but if not, it'll be in the month of April. That's awesome. I'm really excited for that. Also, at the beginning of May, we've got another patron only episode coming out we're going to talk about astrology of famous fundies that's going to be super fun and and just just doing people's charts and stuff like that just just uh, a bit goofy a bit just off the wall and so if you're into that then you should subscribe to the patreon and you'll be able to get that also offering and up patrons are going to be able to uh vote on what merch designs that they like so when Pride Month comes around, we're going to have some new Pride merch, as we do every year. Some Leaving Eden Pride merch. Uh, and the benefit, and, and the, the proceeds from that are going to go to uh, an LGBTQ plus affiliated charity that we haven't decided what it is yet. Um, last year, we donated to Point of Pride. But the merch that we're going to come out with some new merch designs, and we're going to let our um, offering and up tier patrons vote on which merch designs they want to see so that's going to be coming up for the patrons as well anything else uh or do you want to give us the tw let's go ahead and do our tw in general we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on the show including but not limited to suicide and mental health racism misogyny 
PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will mention at least a few of these topics, but we try to avoid any graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story that we're telling. And if we are going to include that detail, we try our absolute best to give the audience a heads up before we go into detail. In this episode, we will talk about adoption, foster care, generational sins, and there's going to be a very brief, very surface-level discussion of the rapture, which I will give an additional trigger warning for right before it happens so that anybody who needs to skip will be able to skip. Thank you for that. So, also, a little fun thing that's going to come at the end of the episode. because this is a Q&A episode, another people who have been doing Q&A stuff lately is Paul and Morgan, um, my personal favorite uh, famous fundy influencers to hate on, just because they're, they're just so... Um, anyway, uh, back in like, before we did our, our episode on what, on like the fundy sex influencers back in February, I wrote them a letter to try to see if i could get them to read my letter on their show which they never did i guess they probably sussed it out as a little bit of a troll job but at the end of the episode i'm gonna read that because your guys's questions have been so good and i think that you guys deserve to to hear that sadie do you want to read our first question or do you want me to sure go for it our first question is from lily ann who uses she her pronouns lily ann wants to know what do fundies think about adoption and foster care this is really interesting because I've heard lots of um, because there's lots of like Christian fundamental like kids that you hear about where there's it's like a a fundamentalist family and they'll have adopted like eight kids or they'll have like eight Mm -hmm. kids in foster care Mm -hmm. and you hear about it on the news or something because there's like some abuse allegation or something like that or, or, or whatever is going on But you'll also hear different fundies with opinions like, oh, you shouldn't adopt or foster because of generational sin. Really? Yeah, we're going to get into all of that. The views on this are different in different parts of fundamentalism. And even within the IFB, there are a lot of conflicting viewpoints. The IFB pays a ton of lip service to infant adoption as a means of preventing abortion. But I don't think i ever knew anyone personally who was going through the process of infant adoption really so i did know some people like older adults who had adopted children who were now adults so people who adopted in like the 60s and the 70s well adopting infants is horribly expensive it's literally like tens or or even hundreds of thousands of dollars to get an infant child like you see people with GoFundMe's where they're trying, where it's like a couple and they've been married and they're trying to get a bait or they tried to, um, they'll try to adopt and they'll have a GoFundMe and they'll literally need hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to adopt a child. There is so much to say about the adoption market in the United States and how prohibitively expensive it is and the potential trauma that comes from adoption and there's also so much to say about good parents who would like to adopt infants who do not have parents and then it on it it's kind of a mess on both sides of that coin but yeah i mean most fundies wouldn't be able to um afford to adopt an infant anyway right so so for the fundies who do 
believe that the best thing that they can do to prevent an abortion is offer to adopt an infant, it can still be prohibitively expensive. And that's one very small piece of the puzzle. There are large parts of the IFB and large segments of IBLP-affiliated people who believe that the generational sins of a child's birth family or family of origin can be passed down to that child. So those segments typically don't encourage adoption at all because if the parents were people with substance use disorder, if the parents were thieves, if the parents were had any besetting sin is what they would call it, that mm. sin is going to be genetically passed down to the adopted baby. And I would like to point out that that is always classist and usually racist. That is a f***ed up belief. Mm -hmm. That is a horrible yes, belief. That is, it is almost always rooted in racism. Wow, that it, man. Mm -hmm. Ugh, yeah. So these people, they may say don't adopt at all because you don't know what generational demons or generational sins this child is coming with. You don't know what demons you're bringing into your home. Some people in those groups would say, well, if you adopt a child young enough, you can train them to overcome these generational sins. So those people would say, well, definitely don't foster or adopt older children. But if you do infant adoption, maybe that's okay. Well, can you get uh, like a baby and then take your baby to Bob Larson and get him to like exercise the demon out of it? I'm sure there is some segment of fundamentalism somewhere where that's <laughs> considered appropriate. Mm. The, the part <laughs> of the IFB that I grew up in also took a lot of issue with the foster care system, both for reasons that I find very legitimate and reasons that I find extremely awful. So the IFP believed that the foster care system was irredeemably corrupt, that a lot of foster families would take in as many children as they legally could to get the government money, but not really take care of the children properly. They said that, you know, kids get shuffled from foster home to foster home and they don't really have a stable life. All of that, I think, is legitimate criticism of the failings of the foster care system. I've heard that from people that aren't like fundy i've mm -hmm. heard that from from plenty of people you know i i've heard um and the foster care system um especially with minority children can mm -hmm. act in that way specifically and be a very toxic and very harmful with regards to that so then when the fundies say when the anti-adoption fundies say well don't adopt because you don't know what generational sins this child is bringing into your home well maybe it's just because the system has failed them over and over and over and over again Maybe that's why they are, quote, unquote, sinning. So to be fair, working with bus kids, the foster children that we encountered did tend to come from negligent foster homes. The great and amazing foster parents out there, like um, friend of the pod, Evan Jones, are not as likely to send their children off on a church bus to who knows where. I don't see that being something that Evan would ever dream of doing. So it's like a selection bias. Yes, it is a selection bias. Interesting. But the con so the conclusion that the IFB draw from this mostly correct information is a faulty conclusion 
the conclusion they draw is that the government shouldn't be paying for supporting these children and that IFB people shouldn't foster children because the children come from difficult life experiences and they will corrupt your good IFB birth children or the other children in your church and cause problems. Well, then what happens to the children? That's the question. That's the question. And they never answer that, do they? Nope. See, man, that's really rough. Because they don't believe in therapy either or like child psychology oh absolutely not so you know a lot of these foster children a lot of them may have some sort of trauma that they just don't know how to deal with or they're they're acting out for um reasons because they have trauma maybe in their lives um just from having an unstable home life and yeah can't give them therapy because that's uh, liberal and that's like Right. So the only answer to it is to immerse the kids in an IFB home and IFB Jesus camp and an IFB school, which is not sufficient to help a child who has any kind of learning disability or neurodivergence or has simply been delayed in school because of their difficult life circumstances. So the IFB system works very poorly for traumatized children. So when IFB families do foster or adopt, Typically, the outcome is that the IFB system does not work well for them. And then that is a confirmation bias. You know, the the IFB people think that it's confirming everything that they think about fostered and adopted children. So as far as the answer to the question, who exactly is supposed to be taking care of these children? The IFB do not like to answer that. They believe that as long as they get everyone saved and in an IFB church in this generation... Well, by the next generation, we won't need such things as foster care. So we're not going to bother doing anything about children who need help right now. We're just going to get everybody saved and baptized and in church so that a generation from now, this isn't a problem. So they're just saying, oh, well, we're attacking the root cause of the problem and everybody else can sort out the symptoms of the problem, but we're attacking the root cause. Okay. That makes sense, but it also doesn't make sense and is like very... I, I see like I see what they're saying and where they're coming from. It's just like ludicrous. And I did want to s- mention if you want to know more about one foster child and a later adopted child's experience in the IBLP, you can check out Liz Hunter on TikTok. Let me let me make sure I have her handle correct. It's that Liz Hunter, right? At that Liz Hunter. Love Liz Hunter. Yes. She's been a guest on the show before. She's a fantastic human. And has a lot more to say than I do because she lived this. Yeah, we had her on. Um, you can also check out our interview with her uh, that we did last June for Pride Month. Great, great yes. interview. She a uh, fantastic interview. If you want to hear somebody talk about how they learned to like like dress the, in, in a style that really that really appeals to them. So we love you, Liz Hunter, if you're listening. Um and we want everyone to know that we love Liz Hunter. Do you want to move on to the next question? Sure. Okay, so this next one, who's this one from? This is from Kevin with he, him, his pronouns. And Kevin asked us, what do fundamentalists like the IFB generally think and say about environmentalism and human interactions with and the management of our environment? And what theological positions and views um, do they have around the environment I have heard you sideways mentioning on the podcast before that environmentalism was generally preached against in the IFB. What other sources 
And in other sources, I have seen like dominion and stewardship used when discussing Christianity and the environment. I also wonder if it is religious positions about the environment that are a major factor in the general anti-environmental uh, regulation views that are common in conservative and far right-wing politics. Excellent question, Kevin. Um, Sadie, can I take uh, a stab at this one? Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to mention that Kevin B. is from Belgium, and I think that's extremely cool. Oh, Go ahead. Fantastic. So, uh, Sadie, why don't I see if I can answer this, and you see if I get it right. Okay? Okay. Because I, I want to see how, how much I've learned about this. Um, oh, boy. With regards to environmental question, uh, there's a few elements here. So, one thing that I have seen quite prominently is the anti-science thing. So, they mistrust scientists in general, because if you trust scientists, then that's how you could get to believing in evolution. And that's, that's one aspect. Right, but also all scientists except for Christians who are scientists like Kent Hovind. <laughs> Dr. Kent Hovind. Dr. Kent Hovind. Um, they all not only believe in evolution, but the entire mission of the science they do is to get you to believe in evolution. So like NASA scientists that are studying astro astronomy and sending out the Mars rover and that kind of thing, they have an evolutionistic agenda. And marine biologists have an evolutionary agenda, and geologists have an evolutionary agenda. So it's not just that they personally believe evolution, it's that every scientific thing they do is an attempt to get you to also believe in evolution. On the conspira uh, conspiratorial front, uh, uh, as Sadie mentioned uh, about the, the whole conspiracy theory and the whole agenda thing, um, there's a belief, and, and this is related to the, this extreme like uh, New World Order conspiracy thing at the extreme end, and then at the less extreme end, just like a, a general distaste with government overreach. So the more conspiratorial thinkers see an increased concern about the environment as like a red herring. They think that the government will use... Uh, uh, will use environmentalism as an excuse to seize control of industries and then do communism slash new world order slash one world government, whatever. And then the beast is going to come and the antichrist is going to come and, and all of that stuff and, and revelation and the rapture and whatever. It's all going to start with people freaking out about the environment and ceding control of industry to the federal government. Um, and so this is where you get people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene saying that the California wildfires weren't caused by drought or by uh, irresponsibly maintained power transmission lines, but that in fact they were started by the Rothschild space laser because the Rothschilds are Illuminati, New World Order, Jews, globalists, whatever, conspiracy dog whistle or, or bullhorn or whatever you want to use. Basically, what she's saying is that they're creating a fake environmental crisis as a false flag in order to for the federal government to take over control and install tyranny. And then they'll like redo all of your favorite movies and TV shows with black people. And then the boys are going to become feminized because the kindergarten uh, teachers will be uh, choosing your kid's gender and all of that stuff and uh, whatever. Right. Yes, exactly. So you're on the right track, both on the anti-science front and on the conspiratorial thinking front. There's a couple more theological things that come in as well. So there's the idea of dominionism, 
Dominionism comes from Genesis 1.28, where Adam and Eve were commanded to, quote, take dominion over the earth and subdue it. The fundies take that to mean that the earth belongs to humans and humans have the right to do whatever they want to it. I've talked about this concept before, that uh, biblical literalists believe that any command in the Bible can potentially apply to them personally in their life. So in scripture, this command to take dominion over the earth and subdue it was given personally to Adam and Eve, but biblical literalists believe that that is given personally to every human. So theologically, how this can play out is, well, God gave us dominion, so whatever we do to the planet is okay. So if we were really messing up the planet, either the planet would fix itself or God would fix it. Or if we did really mess up the planet, it would be fine because it's ours. It's our possession to overtake, to conquer, to live on, and to do whatever the heck we want to. Man, never let the fundies borrow your book or they'll like highlight in it and and like dog ear all of your pages and then well yeah and think about how that relates to consent in fundy marriages good point therefore climate change isn't real because if it were real and we were actually harming the planet the planet would be fixing itself or even if it is real it doesn't matter because god gave us dominion and we're doing what we want conveniently this dominion uh in the fundamentalist worldview only applies to Christians. And this is how we get American dominionism. The, what is, um, manifest destiny. Manifest destiny. Trying to think of that term. Manifest destiny, uh, colonialism. A lot of horrible things come from this concept of dominionism. They will cite the ice age as proof of the idea that we're not actually messing up the planet. They will say that, oh, there have been, ice ages and then warmer times and then ice ages and warmer times cycling on and off every roughly a thousand years ago or so wait 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 since the time of creation we just happen to be living in the opposite of an ice age and a warmer time so don't worry about it wait but the ice age was like what forty thousand years ago yeah but the fundies don't believe that there was a forty thousand years ago so they believe that the ice age happened i think right after noah's flood really could be right that doesn't make any it's been a while So that's the dominionism half of the theological thing. The other half has to do with the rapture. So trigger warning, this is going to be really, really surface level and not too spooky. But I am going to talk about rapture stuff. The fundies also believe that the rapture is coming any day now. So so what if the environment is f***ed and the earth won't last another 200 years? So what? Why does it matter? Jesus is going to come back before then. So who cares? I even heard it growing up that if you recycled or if you cared about the environment, then you had a lack of faith because you were basically saying that you didn't believe that Jesus would come back in your lifetime. Wow. That's... Mm -hmm. So we were literally not allowed to recycle. Okay, you're you're like screwing with my head a little bit right here, but man, okay. (laughs) Are you okay? Man, (sighs) because... Yeah, okay, so is is this a belief this uh, is, that's bespoke to fundamentalism, or is it common within, like, general evangelicalism? Dominionism is very prominent in evangelicalism as a whole. The beliefs about the rapture and end times vary a lot more among American Protestant 
denominations, about half of all Protestants believe in a literal rapture, and then within that group, there is a ton of variation in the beliefs on when it will happen, uh, how soon it could be, will it be before, during, or after the tribulation, before or after the millennium, and how much we need to be thinking about it on a day-to-day -day basis. In general, the more fundamentalist a church is, the more likely they are to believe that the rapture is coming soon, soon, like any day now soon, the more likely they are to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture as well. There are exceptions like Stephen Anderson who believe in a mid-trib rapture, but he also believes that it could be coming any day now and that it's something we need to have on our mind all the time. But the idea that the end times are coming and we don't really need to be worrying about the near-term health of the planet is pretty common. To answer Kevin's question about how much these religious beliefs play into right-wing anti-regulatory sentiment, I think dominionism is very much a, a factor there. I think the rapture theology is less of a factor. Dominionism has been baked into American culture since colonial times before there ever was an America, so it makes total sense that dominionism is still influencing politics today. Very interesting. Thank you so much for telling us that. I think that could be, um, if we wanted to do a, a, a deeper dive episode into something, that would be fascinating to, to talk about. Do you want to read the next question? Do you want me to? Why don't you go ahead and do the next two, because I'm going to answer them together. Okay, so we have two questions here. Um, this one is from Tempa, uh, and it says, My question for Sadie, how did you decide to convert to Catholicism? I'm especially intrigued because I've heard you say a few times that your theological journey is always changing. And if I could add a part two to the question, have you heard of Unitarian Universalism? I was raised in that uh, church with air quotes around the church. And so much of what you say strikes me as Unitarian Universalist. P.S. What's up with the way Ginger Duggar and others pronounce Jesus? I don't get it. So um, I just want you to say to know Tempa that I don't get it either. And I had to listen to Ginger's audiobook. And now whenever I hear like Jesus, it like triggers me a little bit. It's like when I hear people say Oregon instead of Oregon. I do think that the Jesus thing is maybe people who have never been taught diction or enunciation trying to do proper enunciation and trying to not have an accent which is which is a shame because accents are beautiful yeah i mean like if if you want to i mean what she's from arkansas right if she wants to right. talk like she's from arkansas you can talk like you're from arkansas there's nothing wrong with that it's a well the problem is that and i think we've talked about this on the show before but people who are not from the south don't take you seriously if you sound like you're from the south and that's sad because there's lots of wonderful and kind and intelligent people from the southern part of this country. I learned to speak in Mobile, Alabama. I do not naturally sound like this. I sound like this because when I spent time in places that were not Alabama, people picked on me so much and did Man. not take me seriously if I presented a southern accent to the world. So I trained myself out of the habit in order to be taken seriously. And of course, now I regret that. Now I feel like I would assert myself better and feel that, no, I can be an intelligent and smart person 
and a well-spoken person with an accent, but I didn't know that at the time, and now I've done so much vocal training that it's, I don't know that I'd be able to undo it. Well, your parents are wonderfully intelligent people, and both of them speak uh, in, in uh, 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 Southern mannerisms and with a Southern accent. One thing that I noticed was that when we were hanging out and your parents were there, the Southern accent definitely came out for you. Yeah, so people ask me when it comes out, and people assume that it would be if I drink, and that's, I don't think so. It comes out when I'm angry, predominantly, when I'm really, really tired, or when I've been on the phone with my mother. Well, it would make sense that it wouldn't come out when you were drinking, because all, like, when you were young, you wouldn't even drink. Right. So it's not like it, it would be like There's a, not an a, association. But man, that's, I think that's kind of messed up. You can't be judging people based on the accents that they have. And I think us Yanks, us Northerners, us uh, 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 people from places where we consider ourselves to be very enlightened and very intelligent, um, we should maybe take a look at ourselves and wonder whether or not we're being prejudiced towards somebody just from just because of where they grew up. I totally agree. And there's a lot bigger problems in the world such as racism against people who have foreign accents, accents that are not from American English. And there's also racism against people who are users of AAV. So there are bigger problems in the world, but it is a frustrating problem. Well, the AAV thing, it's, I mean, it is, it's, it's definitely a similar problem. Cause you it know, is, they, it is, it's a similar problem. I think it's a, it's a bigger deal because there's an element of racism, which causes a lot more harm than somebody making fun of me or not taking me seriously. There's, there's more real world, real world harm attached to it. That's true. But still, I don't think that it's right for anybody to be, to be saying, oh, you have a seven accent. You've got to be dumb. That's no, absolutely stupid. not. That's just as bigoted and prejudiced as, as anybody else. I, I think that's the answer to the Jesus thing. I think that that maybe because I grew up with my dad, so he was doing diction and vocal coaching with me from probably the time I was five. Well, if you were going to, uh, I mean, because Ginger, she's from Arkansas, which is like, she's from Northwest Arkansas, which is sort of Southern, sort of Midwestern. It's pretty Southern. How would you say Jesus in that kind of, in, in the accent from where she's from? Because there's different Southern accents. Like Alabama is different from Tennessee, is different from Texas, is different from Florida. See, I don't know what, it, what that would sound like in, because I don't know Northern Arkansas accents that well. My family got out of Arkansas like 200 years ago. Because <laughs> in, in Southern Alabama, it's more like Jesus. There's Jesus. like almost like J-A-Y. Jesus. Or J-A-E-S-U-S, maybe. So I don't know what the Northern Arkansas accent would be, though. Interesting. Okay, well, Dinah? maybe we should ask Dinah. Yeah, where's Dinah? <laughs> where's Dinah when we need her? Ah, uh, okay. So um, next question is from Nicole. And don't. And, and so it, it, this question is also to do with the Catholicism. It says, my question is for Sadie. Um, it seems like your faith has landed in a healthy place. Can you talk more specifically about your current faith and what you held, what you held onto from your upbringing? You talk a lot about what you've let go of, but I'm curious where you landed after your deconstruction. And that's from Nicole. So two questions about your current religious beliefs. 
And we've been asked about this a lot. A lot. So I wanted to answer these together because they're so closely related. And this is this is really hard for me to talk about because I feel like all of the religious listeners to our podcast want me to be religious and they want me to think highly of their form of religion. And spoiler alert, I think highly of all non-harmful forms of religion. The listeners who are not believers want me to join them in not being a believer. And the truth is that I'm in the middle of those and I makes it makes me feel like I'm letting everybody down. And it makes me feel that if I speak about my own faith that I'm going to make everybody mad. Well, you know, it's like when we talked about abortion, we were afraid when we came out with that episode that everybody would get mad at us. But then when we came out with that episode, everyone was like, I really thought that what you guys mm -hmm. had to say was really poignant. And all the people we thought were going to be mad at us were like, hopefully everyone doesn't just hate this so much because this is this is really tough for me to talk about. So I left the IFB and I went through some phases very similar to where Ginger Duggar is now. I did the more relaxed Christian thing for a while, and I couldn't shake the concept of universalism, which is something that has literally haunted me every single day of my life since I was about 11 or 12. Honestly, I think about universalism and how it potentially works every single day. <laughs> so at that point, uh, shortly after leaving the IFB, I was thinking maybe Christianity is actually the one true way. But if someone dies believing something else, then God fixes it for them when they get to heaven so that they will like switch over to believing in Jesus. And then it's only the people who reject that final intervention from God that go to hell. That's far from my current beliefs, but it is a lot less toxic and harmful than the IFB belief, for sure. So after a few years of deconstruction and still strongly identifying as a Protestant Christian, but just pondering especially universalism, but a lot of other topics like biblical literalism, what is the Bible, what does it mean to us today, is the Bible inerrant, on and on and on. I went through a, a phase for about three years, like roughly 2016 to 2019, where I was just really feeling my primary emotion was anger. I was so angry about my past and angry about everything I had missed out on, and furious about all the fear and pain and trauma that I had experienced, that I, that was what I needed to deal with. I didn't fully quit believing in God, but I quit praying, I quit engaging with any kind of religion, engaging with theology, because that pain and anger was what had to be dealt with in the moment. It was like wiping the slate clean and trying not to believe anything at all, or just trying to open my hands metaphorically and take a break from belief and took some time to process my experiences and my hurt. I just put a big pause on trying to answer all of the questions about what I believed, and I dealt with the more pressing issues of PTSD and building a life after leaving a cult. That's a healthy decision, though. That's a really healthy decision. Oh, yeah, that's that was um, absolutely the right thing. I think it's really important to note that a lot of my moral formation was done during this time period. Like, what do I really believe is moral or immoral if there's not a God telling me 
what's moral or immoral, if there's not a literal scripture telling me what is moral or immoral, if there's not a pastor or a parent telling me what is good and bad, what do I actually believe is good and bad? This is why I fully reject the idea that atheists have no morals. This is how I learned that morals can come from logic, human kindness, things completely outside of a belief in God. I came to the conclusion that whether you call something a sin or an immoral act or a bad thing or whatever you call it, all sins boil down to an offense against another human being. Even in scripture, often when scripture mentions something is a sin against God, it's, you know, murdering someone is a sin against God. <laughs> well, yes, you you killed one of God's creations who got, of course, that's a sin against God. So I was doing a lot of moral formation and deciding for myself how I will live my life and what I believe is a sin or um, immoral act or whatever. And eventually, I felt that I had enough of being actively angry. I had processed a lot of the hurt. Um, I had worked through where I was not having flashbacks anymore with PTSD, which was great. I was ready to move on to the next step of my process. I do not mean to say that being angry is a bad thing in any way. But what I was ready to do was integrate that valid anger and pain and make it a part of my internal landscape and not the whole internal landscape. I didn't, I didn't need to ditch my anger and never feel it again, but I did need to let it not be the main thing about me anymore. I, had, I just kind of had enough. And in that time, I started thinking about religion and spirituality again and engaging with some of those beliefs and kind of picked up where I left off with deconstruction. So the first big question for me after do I believe in morality was do I believe in God? And I honestly tried not to. For reasons I do not understand, I can't quit believing that there is someone up there, that there is a God. And this is really tough for a lot of reasons, and um, many of those reasons are the judgment that I perceive to get from other people. I know that there are people who think that I can't quit believing in God because I'm cowardly and I can't cope with life without the concept of a loving creator figure who is looking out for me. I know that some folks likely think that I was so brainwashed to believe in God that I'm now unable to give up that belief. And on that one, I don't know, you might be right. If that's what you think about me, you may be correct. <laughs> but if that is true, what exactly do you think I'm supposed to do about it? If that is a part of how my brain functions, and in three years of trying, I was not able to find a way to change that part of my brain, fun how my brain functions, are you expecting me to spend the rest of my life trying not to believe in a thing that I was brainwashed to believe? <laughs> I, I don't want to spend my limited time on Earth that way. I find it far more productive to try to live in a way that is as harmless and helpful to other human beings as I can be. I didn't, I didn't see a use, a benefit to my life or other people's lives in continuing to wrestle with the concept of belief. It wouldn't make me live any differently 
if I believed in God more, it wouldn't make me live any differently if I believed in God less, because I had already made so many determinations about my own moral values. So what I chose to do instead was build my own religious beliefs around my personal beliefs about God and my personal philosophies about the harms that we do to others and what we are to do about the harms that we do to others. I think that there are probably people as well who think that I lack self-determination and that I am too weak-minded to have a moral code without some bearded man in the sky telling me what to do. But as I was just explaining, that couldn't be further from the truth. The moral code that I live by rests on my beliefs about self-determination and free will and a human being's responsibility to other human beings. It does not rest on what God says or what the Bible says. My moral code is supplemented by scripture, but scripture is not the foundation that it is built upon. That process of self-examination is still ongoing, and I don't expect it to end anytime soon. But that process is what has led me to the current state of my own universalism. I have not found a church, Christian or otherwise, that fits my exact views on universalism. I find the idea that Christianity secretly has it right, but like when Jewish or Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim people die, God has to pull them aside and fix them to believe in Jesus so that they can go to heaven. Extremely offensive. <laughs> and, you know, if you believe that, that's so much nicer than funny beliefs, and I don't mean to jump down your throat, but it's not for me. I cannot find a way to not believe in God, but neither can I find a way to believe that my conception of God or the Christian conception of God is the only correct conception. I think that is patently ridiculous. What hubris to say that my holy book is the only actual correct one when there is equal evidence, which is to say very little evidence, for any number of other holy books and religious traditions. I don't think there is evidence outside of Christianity I think there is plenty of evidence to show that Christianity is a valid way of getting in touch with the divine. I don't think there is sufficient evidence to show that Christianity is the only valid way of getting in touch with the divine. Neither do I believe in full universalism. Sorry, I'm laughing because I feel yeah. like this is where I make everybody mad that I haven't made mad yet. I'm, I'm fascinated listening to this, though. So neither do I believe in full universalism. I almost believe in full universalism. So I do not believe that 100% of people go to heaven, to use the Christian term, or whatever the good and positive afterlife may be. I personally do believe in the afterlife, although I can't prove it, so I don't get really too upset if somebody says there isn't one. I think whatever the afterlife is, no one has ever accurately guessed it, so it's kind of pointless for me to try. As scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Ergo, whatever we imagine of the afterlife, we're wrong. I believe, as far as universalism, I believe in a process maybe similar to the concept of purgatory, where people have an opportunity to see the light about the harms that they committed on earth and receive grace and forgiveness for those harms. I believe that I have harmed others, and it humbles and terrifies me to think of the process of confronting those harms and truly repenting of them. 
And yet I await that process with joy, knowing that I can have brought to light the, the ways that I harmed others and experienced true repentance. And um, that's a really meaningful belief to me personally. I think that all humans, no matter how righteous and no matter what their belief system was, will find out that they got a few things right and a lot of things wrong. And I think that many people like me would be humbled and terrified, but willing to have themselves set straight by whoever God is and to move on to whatever is next after repenting of however we hurt other people. I don't think that there is a specific harm to another be human being that is unforgivable, but I think that some people have made themselves irredeemable by their own choice to become so. I think this is actually something that I've held on to from the IFB. Hmm? I said this is interesting. This is actually kind of a very slight vi variation on an IFB doctrine. Wow. Okay, so, so tell me about this. So remember when we, when we talked about Calvinism and Arminianism and free will and all those things? Yes. Under Calvinism, under the teachings of Calvinism, if God has chosen or elected you to be one of the saved, there's nothing you can do about it. In other forms of Christian teaching, you can choose not to be saved. And that's the part huh. I agree with. Because think about it in my, uh, my hypothetical that I've set up. If we all do arrive at an afterlife and there is a creator God there and they confront us with all of the things that we got wrong in life and we have the choice to accept that we were wrong, repent of those wrongs, receive grace and enter into whatever comes next for human souls after we leave this world, doesn't it stand to reason that we would have the choice to say, no, I wasn't wrong. I stand by the things that I did. Do whatever you want to me, but I'm not going to say I was wrong. And that that person who refused to repent and receive grace for the wrongs that they did would not be able to enter into enlightenment or heaven or afterlife or whatever it is that your soul does next. I'm wondering what kind of person that would be. And I'm thinking, you know, like the dictator type of people. I think of the, the dictator type of people... I also tend to think of serial killers because, and not because like, oh, serial killer, that's the worst crime you could be, um, because they, you get killers who go to prison and do some counseling and are really, really sad about what they did, and you get killers who go to prison and get some counseling and refuse to accept that they did anything wrong and continue to harm those around them even after they've been caught. And I think that that illustrates how some people, when confronted with how they have harmed others, would want to change, even if they are imperfect at that process of change, even if they continue to mess up while they are on that journey of change. And some people don't want any part of it. Some people, no, I don't want to change. Well, there's tons of people who you, you they must have been confronted with, this is the bad thing that you're doing in your life, and they've been confronted with that during their life. And yes. they've, yeah, and they've just said no. In, in Christianity, there's a concept of an unforgivable sin. It's mentioned in Matthew 12, 31, Hebrews 10, 26, multiple other passages throughout the New Testament. 
And the unforgivable sin is often phrased as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And nobody really knows what that means. <laughs> the IFB really like to wrestle with this because they believe that God can forgive any sin and that if you pray the sinner's prayer, you can always go to heaven. So it's a big question of like, if you pray the sinner's prayer and you get saved and then you commit the unforgivable unfor sin, can you go to heaven? Or does this mean that someone who has prayed the sinner's prayer and gotten saved is incapable of committing the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a fun, fundy theological debate. What if the unforgivable sin and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a willing refusal of God's grace, i.e. someone who reaches the end of their life is confronted with the opportunity to repent and receive forgiveness and denies that opportunity. Wouldn't it kind of make sense for that to be phrased as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Especially if you conceptualize the Holy Spirit as a light that lives in every one of human beings and attempts to lead us to positive decisions. So, it also, this was my initial problem with the IFB. They practiced opt-in salvation. I practiced opt-out salvation. And the way I think about opt-out salvation is that it's absolutely possible to opt out of, but it's like harder than getting your telephone number off the off, on the do not call registry or harder than getting your email off of spam lists. So basically, <laughs> I feel like everybody's going to hate me. I do not want to come off as a pompous jerk here, but I've kind of invented my own religion of which I am the only practitioner. And I'm genuinely sorry if that sounds pretentious. I really don't mean it to be. Remember, I'm mostly universalist, so if you disagree with me, I don't think you're going to hell or anything like that. And I don't much care if people call me a heretic or whatever. I've been called a heretic enough times that doesn't get to me so bad anymore. I have found a way to relate to the God that I cannot get rid of that feels authentic to me and most importantly makes me genuinely happy to improve myself and be a better person and make better decisions. And that's what it is for me. I think that I have every right to find a belief set that fully fits me and makes me believe that I have peace with God, peace within myself, and the opportunity to exercise the maximum amount of faith that I am personally able to exercise. So all that being said, <laughs> If I'm looking for a church to attend, I'm not looking for a church that matches every belief I have because I don't think that exists. Because as I said, my moral beliefs don't come from a church, nor from someone else's interpretation of scripture, nor only from my own interpretation of scripture. My moral beliefs come from a very long, grueling, difficult, ongoing process of self-examination. I think that the divine or God, if that's what you want to call them, can be met through any number of ways. I think that God can be met through any number of religions because it's not about the thoughts that you think. It's ultimately about your willingness to deal with the harm that you've caused others, both in this life and after this life is over. So when I'm, if I want to go to church, I'm not looking for a church that's going to tell me what's right and wrong so I can follow their rules. I'm looking for someplace where I can sit without having a PTSD attack. And for me, 
that means high church, which is why I don't attend a Unitarian Universalist church, because I really, really like the, and, and I feel so much safer in a place with you know, the stone columns and the stained glass windows and the incense and the robes and the, the Latin and all that. And it's really that simple. I have my own belief set, which is constantly being refined and developed in a way that brings me increasing peace and comfort. I'm looking for some place where I can sit to practice my own beliefs that doesn't give me PTSD. And I can see a lot of reflections about, a lot of reflections of my own beliefs about the divine, my own beliefs about scripture, my own beliefs about connection with God in the practices of the Catholic Church, although there are many places that I disagree with the teachings of the church. That was very fascinating to listen to, Sadie. I hope so, because it was like half an hour. <laughs> Three things. First, um, I'm going to transcribe all that down, put it on our website, and that's our statement of faith now. And if you don't agree to it, then you're... <laughs> Uh, and all of our guests have to sign <laughs> have to sign it before they can come on to our podcast. Yeah. Oh, uh, man. Okay. Number two. That is the work that Ginger Duggar has never done. That is the questions that Ginger Duggar has never asked herself and has never answered. That was one of our biggest criticisms with her book. Uh, I will tell you, it kind of sucks. Yeah. Like, can you, can you conceptualize how many nights of staying up all night crying that this represents because <laughs> it's a lot it's a lot you know like i i if she doesn't want to do that i don't blame her because that sounds like a lot of work it's it's really it's tough but i'm i'm proud of where i i don't even like to say like where i've landed but where i have gotten to so far yeah and i mean like that's like if if you're not willing to do that work then you can't be out here saying oh i'm a thought uh, or like i'm a, a influencer in the religious space or whatever like she is and that's kind of the it's also like a commitment to starting this process there's a very real sense that you are committing to the idea that you may never be done i hope i didn't come off in that entire speech about in that entire speech as someone who thinks i'm done um this is just where i've gotten to so far and when you make that jump, you are you have to fully accept that you might never land, and that's very scary. Third thing that I wanted to say is uh, to our listeners is that we were planning on doing like a full episode to cover this. Literally for years, we'd been planning on doing this episode, um, and we were planning on doing it like a year ago. And it was going to be around Easter, and it was going to be around the time when Sadie was going to have her confirmation into Catholicism. But then, as you know, Sadie's dad died very suddenly. He was one of the witnesses for her confirmation, said all of that back, and it was just like... Yeah. Ugh. And that part, I'm not going to go into nearly so much detail on, because it's really painful to talk about for a lot of reasons. Um, yeah, my dad's death messed up my paperwork, and there's already so much paperwork. There have also been some issues in my parish specifically that have been barriers to my confirmation i am not going to get into that on the podcast but like there's been church drama that's just been a discouragement and added additional barriers yeah and it's not like this is a a, a spiritual need for you to get this done it's, it's not like getting saved and baptized if you were a fundy 
Right. Partially because of the universalism. I will tell you, my belief structure as it stands requires more faith than being IFB ever did. In the IFB, I believed that I had it right, that my group was the only one that had it right, and that I said the magic word, so I was going to heaven. And that is so much easier to believe in than what I have now, because now I have to accept that no matter how much I think I've gotten right, I definitely got some things wrong. And I have to deal with, I am not correct about all of this every single day and throw myself on the mercy of whatever, whoever God is, that they will see that my intentions are pure and that they will save me by grace and mercy. My new beliefs require a daily active living faith that is far beyond, I said the magic word, so now I'm good. But you're right. I don't feel that I need confirmation in the church to do anything about my eternal destination or my afterlife or anything like that. What I want it for is to belong to a body of worshipers and participate in corporate worship, that worship being one of many valid ways to contact the divinity that I can't quit. <laughs> and frankly, I don't much like that it's so hard to get to that point. I understand that because of people like Mike Warnke, the church can't just let you walk in and say, I want to join the church. Great, here you go. Because of because people like him have caused paranoia about consecrated hosts being sold for satanic rituals, which does ever so occasionally happen, uh, which is a pretty big deal to Catholics, but people like Mike Warnke have made a paranoia about it that makes it harder to join the church, which annoys me. Yeah, and it's not like if you, you know, went there on Easter and you took Charlotte to, to Mass on Easter, they're going to be like, are you confirmed? you know you're not confirmed get out of here like you're you're not allowed no but i can't receive sacraments which is kind of a huge deal so to sew it all up i want to be catholic but the more time goes on it feels like they don't want me there are interpersonal huh. reasons and there are corporate reasons that i don't feel like the church wants me the way that i want the church in my own religious beliefs i want to address the harms of the Catholic Church. I don't want to talk around that. In my own belief system, I accept that we all harm others and that repentance is necessary, not just in words. Saying I'm sorry is not enough. It, repentance requires an action. I think where I differ with people who rightfully criticize the Church is that I think the Catholic Church is capable of showing true repentance for the harms that it has done to Jewish people, indigenous people, LGBTQ people, and so many others. The question is only, is not are they capable of repenting, because I believe that the church is capable. The question is, is the church going to act on that capability and show true repentance? In the last couple of years, there was a priest in Canada who, after a new discovery of a burial ground at a nearby residential school, lay down face down on the altar in front of his congregation. He led the entire congregation in an extended period of prayer and repentance for the harms that were done generations previous. And that's not enough, but that's the spirit. That's the right, that's, that's the right spirit. Let's talk about a years-long, decades-long, permanent 
process of repentance, including not only extended prayer and denial, not only verbal acceptance of the harms that the church has done, but also financial retributions, becoming an organization that helps undo the harms of the past and the lasting harms to present people caused by the church in the past. That's what I want, and that's what I believe is possible for the church. But for that to happen, there would have to be more people like that priest in Canada, more people ready to start with the spirit of true repentance, which would hopefully lead to actions of true repentance. And if the church is not welcoming people like me who want to convert and repent and is also chasing off people like me who were cradle Catholics and want the church to repent, where are the people who want to practice true repentance going to come from? Like, where is the church going to find them? Because when I think about becoming confirmed and joining the Catholic Church, that means shouldering the burden of repentance for the harms that the church did before I was ever a part of it. That means taking on a physical responsibility in the real world for undoing those harms and for being a part of the church as they work to undo those harms. I think about the the repentance that I want to show for the harms that my ancestors did to people of color, and I think about the actions that I do to attempt to undo those harms. And when I think about joining the church, I think about taking on a corresponding responsibility equal to the responsibility that I already accept as a white person from the South of doing the work of repentance. And that is something that I am willing and ready to take on. Well, do you see that the, um, the, the unwillingness to show repentance as analogous to the unwillingness to accept God's grace? Possibly. Interesting. Okay. Well, that, that's that's fascinating. And I think that's I think that's a problem. So I hope I hope that explains where I'm coming from. I know that was ex- incredibly long, but so many people have asked. Maybe people did want to hear it. It does feel a bit hypocritical that they're having the that that Catholicism is the opt out salvation, yet it seems like there's a good portion of the Catholic Church that wants to opt out of that repentance. And if those two, if if one can't really happen without the other, then that seems yes. like that's a problem. That is a problem. I think my my perspective is that the Church has had equally huge theological problems in the past that have been fixed or mostly fixed, um, like the idea of selling indulgences for money. That is a huge theological problem. And I, I think the church is capable of that kind of change. I just don't think they're willing. But I think the willingness problem is a problem of population because the, <clears throat> the discerning Catholics are the people who would like to get confirmed who are willing to do that repentance are not getting confirmed because of the church's corporate lack of showing repentance. And I think the cradle Catholics are people who are already confirmed that would like to show that repentance are dropping away from the church 
because of the church's corporate lack of repentance. Interesting. Okay. Well, thanks for for saying that. Uh, uh, We're going to go and take up the offering now, and then we're going to come back and do the rest of your questions afterwards. But that was really, really fascinating. And I'm... I'm, Well, thank you. (laughs) When we come back from the offering, um, I might have to go get a drink myself, but we will uh, we'll be a little more lighthearted. Yeah, it'll be it'll be fun. Um, and thank you for listening. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, That group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We are back from our break. We're uh, listening to... You're, we're reading and answering your questions right now. Um, we just had Sadie's uh, uh, amazing and well thought out and very well put and, and bravely put, I do believe, statement about where she is uh, 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 spiritually at this moment. And um, maybe now we, we shift gears and uh, talk about a few other things. Do you want me to read this next uh, this next question? I think the questions in the second half are going to be a little bit lighter than that one. Sure. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> that was enough for me for today. <laughs> this is a question from Jed. And Jed's question is, how do IFB churches feel about being so hostile to denominations that often come so close to them? and reach out with a warm and and sisterly or or brotherly intentions of fellowship does it ever cause people a level of guilt or regret at having to reject other evangelicals i'm just curious in general how they maintain that level of insularity um aside from the obvious uh persecution fetish that drives many denominations so jed had told a story about a Protestant church from a local town had held a joint youth night and rented out a local community community center and held a youth ski evening. And the IFB church that Jed's grandparents went to would not even respond to their invitations. 
So I have absolutely seen and experienced this type of behavior from IFB churches. And there are a couple different things at play here. So let's throw out a couple different terms, define them, put them all together. Uh, there's a salvation theology issue. There's the concept of secondary separation. And then there is the concept of ecumenicalism. So I defined secondary separation in the episode on Bob Jones University, but I want to review that just for anybody who hasn't gotten to that episode yet. Separation refers to the IFB belief that Christians need to separate themselves from the quote-unquote worldly way of doing things. Christians need to look different, act different, be visibly different from the non-Christian people around them. This is something that girl-defined fundies or Paul and Morgan type fundies or other Christian influencers don't do nearly well enough for IFB standards. Um, like if you're a bachelor person, Maddie Pruitt, with her new mind, her new line of modest swimwear, <laughs> that's just regular swimwear. <laughs> People like that aren't visibly distinguished enough from the world. So you might see them in public and not immediately go, oh, they must be Christians, oh, they must be fundamentalists. This is where secondary separation comes in. The IFB not only believe that they should be different from the world and separated from the world, they also believe that they should separate themselves from people like Girl Defined or Paul and Morgan who aren't separated enough from the world themselves. So that's kind of the key to the, the isolation of the IFB. They also believe that a lot of other Protestant denominations are not truly saved. Sidebar, the IFB mm. would define themselves as neither Protestant nor a denomination. But if a church's or denomination's salvation theology doesn't line up with the IFB, the IFB believe that they are false Christians who have been led astray by false prophets. So this is why the IFB will try to convert not only Catholics, but people from almost any other Christian group, because they truly believe that those people are going to hell because they think the wrong thing about salvation. <laughs> of course, ecumenicalism refers to exactly these kind of efforts, like interfaith efforts to have good faith conversations or interdenominational efforts to have fellowship with other Christians. This is heavily associated with a lot of those conversations around the social gospel. It's another thing along those lines that's not only seen as being wrong, not only seen as being liberal, but actually sinful. So because of those things, I don't think there's a lot of guilt around the level of hostility toward other denominations. Because the IFB logic is, they're not even saved. They want to dilute our message of salvation with their heresies and their false prophets. And if we were to be seen collaborating with them or fellowshipping with them, we would be weakening our message and leading people into a false hope of salvation. So if we went to an ecumenical picnic with other denominations and the Methodists brought beer and the Catholics brought wine, then our association with other denominations would make us associated with drunkards, and that would be breaking our own IFB standards and not standing up for the truth. Or if we went to this interdenominational Christian ski trip, girls from some of the other youth groups are going to be wearing ski pants without a long denim skirt over them. And that's going to cause our good IFB boys to lust and 
people are going to see us associating with those heathen Methodist girls in ski pants. And that's going to make us appear as if we're weak and we don't have standards. It's along the same lines of the IFB rules against walking down the beer or wine aisle in the grocery store or the IFB rules against going to a movie theater. Because if someone sees you walking down the beer and wine aisle in the grocery store, they're going to assume that you were there to buy beer and wine, and that is going to hurt your testimony. Or if someone sees you at the movie theater, they don't know what you're there to see. You might be at the movie theater to see a G-rated movie, or you might be there to see a horrible R-rated movie. And that hurts your testimony because some people are going to assume that you're there to see something that you shouldn't be seeing. So along those same lines of logic, well, if somebody sees your youth group mixed in with these Methodist girls on, this, on the ski trip who are wearing ski pants, they don't have a way of knowing of who is our IFB girls and who is the Methodist girls. So they might assume that some of our good IFB girls are wearing ski pants without a long denim skirt over. And that makes us appear as if we're losing our standards, as if we're weak. It's a poor testimony. So all of this gave me really complicated feelings growing up because I wanted to do all the fun things that other people were doing. I wanted to go on this ski trip and I was curious about other beliefs, even if I strongly believed that those beliefs were wrong. And I wished that we had the ability to fellowship with other people. It was phrased as, well, if only they would get saved and start living right and have standards, then we would be able to fellowship with them. But because they are willingly ignorant to the truth of what the Bible really says, we can't associate with them. So that's how they get around feeling any guilt at all about that and how they are so confident in their behavior. I mean, if it's like your dad's congregation where they, they're like medium to decent sized, um, but they're still not doing amazingly. You know, that like that could be a real disadvantage to have that. But if you're Jack Hiles, that's not a problem because he, you know, he's bussing people in and he's got tens of thousands of people who are in the ministry and he can get up there and say, if your standards are slipping, then your standards are slipping because that affects the little guy and not him. Right. Okay, so our next question is from Sarah. Sarah uses she, her pronouns. Do you want to read this one, Sadie? Yeah, I'd love to. So I'm going to read this whole question. Do it. With the new Waco doc out, I started talking to my friend about cults, as I know a lot about different historical ones. He said that the harmful effects of cults are why he doesn't like the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt TV show. Hmm. He said he appreciated that she didn't let her past hold her back, but isn't it kind of trivializing portraying a cult survivor as only being adorably naive and that it's pushing off trauma and unhealthy behaviors is quirky. I immediately thought of your podcast and I told him I wanted to send an email in about if you had any thoughts about that TV show. That's really interesting. That's a great question. Yeah, that's a really, a really good question. So for background, I think it's really important to note that the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt came out in 2015. And the biggest part of my deconstruction was happening from like 2013 to 2016-ish. So this was just coming out just as I was first able to start saying that the IFB was a cult and beginning to realize how harmful it was. So personally, I really related to the show. It was the first time I'd ever seen a cult survivor portrayed on television. And at that point, I did not need 
a dark or gritty drama about cult stuff. I needed to be able to laugh at the funny parts while I was processing the really, really difficult parts. Clearly, that's informed how I still treat my cult experience, because even as I talk about the darkest parts and the deepest hurts, I'm always ready to laugh about it. I think it's a good thing to show a cult survivor on TV in general. Kimmy is naive and gullible and socially weird, but she's a good person, she's a positive character, and it meant the world to me to see someone like me on TV when I was in that position. That being said, I don't think Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is a great representation of cult experiences if it is the only representation that someone has ever seen. That would definitely not be ideal. I don't think it trivialized her experiences. I think it just picked out the truly funny parts to laugh about. So I so I don't I don't have a problem with the show. I just think that hopefully people who are interested in cults have more than just this one show in their arsenal of things about cults that they like to watch and listen to. Well, it's an in, it's an interesting show too in that there are definitely parts where it's clear that she very much has PTSD and deals with trauma and deconstruction, but then there's like a comedic veneer over it. But then there are parts yeah. of the show where it's like, oh, emotionally, that's a really dark part of the show. Ooh. Yeah, and that's, I, I think it resonates with me well because that's similar to how I deal with my own experiences. I wanted to dig into this one level deeper, though, because Sarah said that her friend said that the show can be seen as pushing off trauma and unhealthy behaviors as quirky. I would argue that society in general tends to do that about all sorts of people, but especially feminine people. It's amazing how different the reception can be depending on how I present or talk about my cult experience. So sometimes I'll bring it up as like, oh, fun fact about me, I was raised in a cult. And sometimes I'll, I'll bring it up in a way that's much more serious and much more like I'm sharing my trauma with you. And a lot of times it's somewhere in between those two. And the different methods of outing myself as a cult survivor have drastically different responses from people. So sometimes I'll tell a story and the only appropriate response to that story is, I am so sorry that happened to you. But outside of those few stories, most of the time when I'm telling parts of my cult experience, I don't want pity. I just want validation. So sometimes pity is the correct response. Sometimes I'm so sorry is the correct response, but I would say like 70 to 80% of the time, the response that I want and need is not, I'm so sorry. The response that I want and need is the validation of like, bro, that's super f bro. <laughs> that's like more, it's, it's lighter and it's more like, I just want other people to agree with me that what I went through was messed up. Yeah, and I don't need people falling all over themselves to tell me how horrible it was. Like, I know, I lived it. I just want to laugh about it now. I want you to understand, Sadie, that the thing that you went through wasn't normal. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know, but I want people to also tell me that. Because, because why, Gavi? Because cults teach you to gaslight and brainwash yourself. Because I was gaslit about my own experiences for 20 years and what i really need from other people 
is for them to agree with me of, yes, you are portraying your experience accurately. And yes, it was really messed up. Well, I mean, that's just like basic affirmation. You know, that's why we, but uh, do you ever have it happen where you like tell a story from your upbringing, like at a party and then people are just like, like the room goes silent and people are just like, Jesus Christ. Like that's constantly that, yeah. or like, yeah, I mean, my, my favorite or like you, you pull up the, the Jack Scott Paula shaft thing at a party and be like, Oh, this is, this is how I was raised. I was in the audience for this. <laughs> yeah. I've done that. It does not go over well. <laughs> So I was like, I was like hanging out with friends and my husband, uh, right before the pandemic and we were all showing each other like dumb videos on YouTube. That was our entertainment for the night was either like, Hey, look at this really cool song by this really cool band that I like, or like, Hey, let me show you this, this stupid thing on YouTube. And I pulled up the polish shaft video and I <laughs> really traumatized <laughs> one of my friends <laughs> and he still won't let me forget about it. That's a party trick, man. Every, That's like every time I see him, he's like, "Yeah, you showed me that that video." <laughs> <laughs> so, like a lot of times, I do pretend to present my cult experience in a more humorous way because that's what feels that's what I want. That's like the validation that I need from others around me. And people do sometimes treat me as if my trauma or my unhealthy behavior is just quirky and that's something i've had to learn on my own to deal with so the way that kimmy schmidt portrayed that it's certainly not ideal but it seemed to me to be fairly accurate to my cult experience um it was almost like um the uh, non-alcoholic beer is to regular beer as kimmy schmidt is to my cult experience were you watching the show when it was coming out? Yeah. Okay. And I never saw the, I think I saw a season three, but I don't think I ever saw the last season. I'll probably go back and watch season four at some point. But I, I do think that it's more accurate than I would have expected a TV show to be about my experience. So Sarah's friend seems to be saying that cult survivors need a deeper level of care than is portrayed on Kimmy Schmidt and that we shouldn't trivialize cult experiences. And I certainly agree with him on that. I do think the show accurately portrays what it tries to be accurate about, how people treat cult survivors, the stereotype of like, how dumb were you to get sucked into this? And neither the character of Kimmy nor I chose to get sucked into a cult and yet we're still treated as if we somehow chose that out of a lack of intelligence. So if we feel a bit frustrated about how Kimmy is treated as a character, I think that still does some good for the world because maybe that teaches us some lessons about how to treat survivors in the real world. So my answer of what I think of the show, it's certainly not comprehensive, but I think that's okay. It's not trying to be comprehensive. And I would hope that a reasonable person would watch this show and see the humorous side of things and appreciate it as entertainment, but also recognize that real cult survivors would be deeply harmed by their cult, cult experience and learn to sympathize with real cult survivors by sympathizing with the character of Kimmy. 
I found the show really enjoyable personally, although I wasn't raised in a cult. Um, one thing I'm wondering, what do you think about the portrayal of the cult that she was actually in in the show? Do you think that, that it was a little bit outlandish in that they were like in an underground bunker or is that just sort of in line with the kind of whimsical over the top nature of the show itself? I didn't think it was outlandish at all. I mean, how different is the Reverend Richard Wayne, Gary Wayne's cult from the IFB? Like what is different? I guess that's a good point. I mean, I, I guess it's, it's more similar to like, it's like a cartoonish version. I feel like of the branch Davidians, but there are like the, the fundamentalist beliefs that they reference are real fundamentalist beliefs. Like when the Reverend quotes scripture, it's real scripture. I got hella triggered multiple times watching that show because he speaks like a real fundamentalist preacher. I know that, that Richard Wayne Gary Wayne is supposed to be kind of buffoonish, but when you take out the element of him acting like a buffoon, the underlying script that he is working from is incredibly accurate. All they've done is taken real fundamentalist beliefs, mixed in like all of his wacky TV references and malapropisms and that sort of thing, and then they've set the whole thing in a bunker for dramatic effect. Well, a lot of fundamentalist preachers are extremely buffoonish anyway. Like what yes. we watched, um, we watched the dude smash up the television with an axe. We watched Jack Scop do his polished shaft. Those are both extremely buffoonish things to do in public. Mm -hmm. Yes, and IFB preachers will often present themselves as, "Well, I'm just a big old dummy, but I'm a big old dummy who knows the word of God." And that's Jack Hiles, like trademark that was his calling card mm -hmm. yeah but everybody copied hiles because he was hiles or like oh well i don't have much book learning but what i have is learning in this book and so presenting themselves as unintelligent is a hallmark of ifb pastors so richard wayne gary wayne is literally just the tv the tv show version of that it's not outlandish to me <laughs> i also think that having the show, having the cult part set in a bunker is a really powerful metaphor. I've talked about it before in the IFB. I grew up on a compound of the mind, a compound of the soul, which makes me think of who is that? The slaughter of the soul at the gates. Yeah. Every time I, I say compound of the soul, I hear the song slaughter of the soul by at the gates in my head. But I, I've talked about how I was physically less imprisoned than Kimmy and the other people in the bunker, but I was, I had built a prison myself around my mind and soul based on information control, thought control, and emotion control. That and everything that happened caused me to reinforce that metaphorical prison in my mind and continue to isolate myself. And I think the bunker is a great metaphor for that. So I never really took the bunker to be like in the world of the show. It's a literal thing that happened in, in universe. It's literal, but I think in our world, it's supposed to be a metaphor. And I think it's a good one. Every time you talk about these things, I just get like, I, I don't know, you take me somewhere. You, you really, you really have a way with words, <laughs> a way of talking about the things that you went through in a way that makes it 
understandable for people like me who never went through them. I think that's like, that's what I have to do to be okay in my own brain. Yeah. Like I, my fundamentalism's brainwashing goes so far beyond your conscious mind. It goes so far beyond a list of incorrect facts and extreme rules. It, it is so much more than that. It is so much more than even a pre-made worldview which you were forced to accept. That's just, that's the tip of the iceberg. That's just the beginning. Fundamentalism wires your brain from the ground up, from a tiny toddler, to think a certain way and to treat your own mind a certain way with twisted scripture that I won't quote because I'll trigger people, but most people probably know which one I'm referring to. It's like cognitive, cog cognitive behavioral therapy, but completely misused and used to brainwash yourself constantly daily into the fundamentalist way of thinking. It gets in your cells. It is pervasive when you are raised in it. And to attempt to rewire my brain and have a mind that functions out here in the real world, and frankly, to live with the daily reality of PTSD, this is the kind of thought that I have had to do just in order just to live in the world and be a person. I had to dissect and analyze and understand this. So, what, so I'm speaking now from the overflow of 10 years coming up this year of dissecting and analyzing and dealing with this in my own mind so that I can t continue to, to be in the world. One more thing I want to say about Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is that yeah, by all means. Titus Burgess is a joy every time he appears on screen. Oh, absolutely. That's the, that's the only other thing that I wanted to say about the, the show, but I think that's about it for that question i would personally love to do like a how i met your mother style sitcom where the main character is a fundamentalism cult survivor who moves to portland oregon and has to do deconstruction that would be like i, I would watch that would you watch that i would i mean i'll watch just about anything that's cult related because of the yeah. you know the the 10 years of analyzing and, and dissecting and all that yeah by the way uh this is one of many ideas that uh we have as far as as fundamentalism and cult related television if you are a tv producer please hit us up we have amazing ideas or if you're not a tv producer but your cousin is or your neighbor's kid is or you have some weird connection like that maybe consider us doing us a favor just like give them our email address we also got uh, can i move on to the next one planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Yeah, so this one is from Siobhan. Thank you for writing us, Siobhan. Siobhan didn't uh, necessarily send us a question, but Siobhan just sent us a letter that said, I love your show. I'm in awe of the amount of research that goes into each episode. Um, I can validate your suspicions that Mike Warnke did not do his homework before he wrote his book. I am almost 69 years old, and I grew up in the counterculture. Wow, that's awesome. Um, Mike claims... Mike's claims of having waist-length hair, participating in acid tests, getting LSD from uh, Dr. Leary, visiting hippie communes as far back as 1964 and 1965 are ridiculous. These things were just not happening during those years. And then Siobhan goes on to say, I'm wondering if either of you have read Jessica uh, Willis Fisher's book, Unspeakable, and if you intend to cover it in the future of the podcast. Um First things first, I haven't read that book. Uh, do you know anything about this book? Yes, uh, Jessica actually messaged me on Instagram and was so kind as to send me a copy. And so that is next up on my reading list after the book that we're doing for the She Read podcast. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and I'm I'm really excited to read it. I've heard that it's incredible. Okay, well, I'm really excited to hear about that when that happens. Um, anyway, uh, it, I... Uh, to your prior point, Siobhan, I asked my mom, who is, I think, a few years younger than you, because um, my mom was born in 1956, and she grew up in the San Fernando Valley, uh, and she told me pretty much the same thing, that the kind of stuff that Mike Warnke was talking about definitely wasn't going on in 64 and 65 in, like, San Bernardino. That just wasn't... Yeah, and we already knew that Warnke was full of it. But we always appreciate a little extra confirmation. I mostly wanted to include this just because Siobhan sounds like super cool. And I kind of wish that you were my bonus auntie or something. I bet you have amazing stories. Do you want to go to the next question from Mrs. Mrs. Hamilton? Mrs. Hamilton. Wonderful. Uh, Yeah, let me read this. I can read this one. Okay. Yeah, you read this. Okay. So Mrs. Hamilton wants to know about periods as a fundy. Well, we talked about how in the IBLP, families track everyone's periods on a calendar in the kitchen. And that's like somehow supposed to be considered normal. So she asks, are unmarried AFAB individuals allowed to use tampons or are they considered sinful because they're inserted in the vagina? Are married fundies even allowed to use them? How are AFAB children taught about menstruation and about puberty 
Is there a certain age when families will have the talk or specific materials that families may use to explain puberty to children? Uh, would there ever be a situation in the IFB when an unmarried young person would be allowed to use birth control if they experience excessively heavy and debilitating periods? Also, are periods something that AFAB individuals are even allowed to talk about with each other? For example, would it be appropriate for a high school-aged individual to ask a friend if they have spare period products in an emergency? This is a great question. So let me see. Let me see how I can block it out to to make it make sense. Because I'm sure that the men's knowledge of periods and anything to do with um with with female puberty and anything to do with that or or AFAB puberty, excuse me, and AFAB anatomy, um, and how that actually works on a scientific level or like a biological level is extremely lacking and also probably full of misconceptions yeah like you will sometimes see on the internet guys who think that a period can be held in like a fart <coughs> or that it a period <laughs> is an hour it like lasts for an hour like bleeding lasts for an hour things like that you will see if here only. and there on the on, on the <laughs> internet at large <laughs> I very much assume that all Fundy boys are, like, believe that sort of thing. Uh, it was a very taboo topic growing up. I didn't have the experience of being in a regular school or around regular teenagers, so it's hard to know, like, what was teenagers being teenagers and <clears throat> being socialized into feeling like normal bodily functions are taboo and what was the addition of the IFB. But I can answer some of these specific questions with a lot more detail. So my parents gave me the American Girl doll Care and Keeping of You, I think is the book, that like 50% of 90s AFAB people got as a here's what's about to happen with your body book. I think my experience was probably pretty atypical, unfortunately, because that is a fantastic book. Uh, that's something that I would give to my own kid in the future. Uh, and that book is—it's very—it's very matter of fact. It's—it's a—it's right at I think the correct age level, the correct amount of information on all sorts of things, not just menstruation. I think I've heard a lot of other. AFAB people who grew up in fundamentalism saying that they were given older books, like 1950s books, <laughs> that mm. maybe had some seriously outdated information in them. I think that was giving your kid a book was a pretty common thing to do. But I think that most people were not as lucky to get as modern and progressive of a source as I did. I think a lot of people got like 50s and 60s. <laughs> books unfortunately um are unmarried people allowed to use tampons this is one of the few areas of ifb theology that i've never really seen a man stick their nose in thank god of course they're doing it now that they can like spout off on twitter like holes uh like a guy did a couple weeks ago by the time this comes out oh god what did he say uh he was mad that teachers will stock tampons to give to people who need them in their schools because that is the teacher quote making a choice for them uh, and he ended his tweet what with 
they will be old and worn out before they even have a chance to get to have babies. Can't we just save one thing for marriage? Uh, what? Yep. This mm. is... But I didn't, in my section of the IFB, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't completely off limits to be allowed to use tampons. This was before, like, discs and cups were something that mainstream folks were aware of. But I think even that would have been allowed in my section of the IFB. I am sure there are many, many places within the IFB that that would be completely off limits. Uh, um... I want to go back to that dude on Twitter. Who's worse? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy or the f***y phrenology guy? It, no, it two different people. I know. Who's worse? Oh, what's, who's worse? Like, what's, what take is worse? I would say the vulva phrenology woman because she was, like, actively hating on trans people. Whereas if this guy says this on the internet, he's just going to get clowned by literally everybody being... <laughs> right. Like, the, the other lady has the ability to invalidate and cause damage and potentially cause real life danger to trans people this guy i don't think he's putting any young people who have periods in actual danger because they're not going to see his dumb tweet on twitter so i think there's more real life harm with the other person is there a certain age when families will have the talk talking about menstruation or other changes that a person's body will go through would be at a more typical age, I think, like 10, 11, 12. Um, what they do try to do is prevent any knowledge about the mechanics of sex until a person is much, much older. So, fundy kids literally do not know. Like, they may be taught in school, like, a pregnancy occurs when a sperm fertilizes an egg, and then that egg attaches to the inside of a person's uterine wall. Like, they may know that, but they are not supposed to have any clue on where, where a sperm, how a sperm and an egg get together, typically. Like, how that happens. So, knowing... I also feel like the, the biological details of how menstruation works are important to know because that helps destigmatize and break the cycles of shame around this incredibly normal bodily process that happens to roughly 50% of the population. And that's not really discussed in the IFB. Like, oh, your uterus thinks there's going to be a pregnancy in there. So it builds tissues and blood flow to support that potential pregnancy. And then when there isn't a pregnancy, that tissue and blood has to go someplace. Like that isn't explained as well as I think it could be because it is a very stigmatized and very taboo thing. And I think that education like that is really crucial. And that's something that fundy people are probably missing out on a majority of the time. Uh, the final part of that question. Oh, would an unmarried young person be allowed to use birth control if they experience excessively heavy and debilitating periods? Sometimes in some parts of the IFB, this would be acceptable but it would be a huge shameful secret so only the person experience the person taking the medication and their mother would be aware and it might even be like you can't tell anyone you can't tell your friends you can't tell other family members because of the stigma of if you're using birth control then you are having 
immoral sex and you were subverting God's plan in other parts of the IFB. Like, that's just the curse on women. Too bad. Ugh. And would AFAB individuals be allowed to talk about periods with each other? I think this is where my experience would be more similar to a normal high school experience. Like, we, we definitely did, but it was the kind of thing if a boy person overheard you talking about that, then you would just die of embarrassment and never come back to school again. But I think that's more typical in the real world just because of unnecessary stigma. That was very well put. Thank you for answering that question, Sadie. Um, I saw that once. So we were done writing this episode, but that question came in and I said, no, I got to get this one. And same with the next one. Next yeah. one uh, uh, coming in too. And then I'm going to uh, read the letter that I wrote to Paul and Morgan, which they sadly never answered on their show. Okay, um, let's do our last question. So the last question is from Grace. Grace uses uh, she, her pronouns wonderful um grace says i love the podcast can't tell you how much i've learned from the show i grew up in an atheist household and i think learning from your story helps me to be a more empathetic person learning from sadie's story has helped me to be a more empathetic person i think definitely well thank you for that to both of you so grace's question grace uh grace says um my question is for you sadie when I was a teen girl, the only thing on my mind was boys. Oy vey. She was boy crazy. I'm sure fundy AFABs aren't allowed to have posters of boy bands and otherworldly heartthrobs on their walls. But I'm curious. Who are the fundy equivalents to the Harry Styles, Justin Bieber's, and <laughs> boy bands that teen girls obsess over? Are there any? I'm so curious. Okay. <laughs> I think I know the answer to this. The one, answer too. to that question is so embarrassing. It is vastly more embarrassing than talking about periods could ever be. Oh my God. Is it the Hiles Anderson tour group boys? It is the Hiles Anderson <laughs> tour group boys. <laughs> <laughs> that is the answer. Also fundamental difference. What's fundamental difference? Uh, fundamental difference was one of the few like, ifb specific singing groups that ever made it big within the ifb world they were uh they were ifb celebrities one of the guys was from a church that i had spent time in growing up so i felt really personally connected to them they are a southern gospel style trio who do a lot of southern gospel type songs but without any drums or anything like that a lot of ragtime piano they're the best they? singing group to ever come out of the IFB. So it was a father and a son and another oh. guy. So the dad, I think when I was aware of them, the dad would have been like in his 50s, the son in his 20s, and the other guy in his late 20s. But it was mostly like the Hiles Anderson uh, tour group boys. Right. Well, everybody in Fundamental Difference was married. So we weren't allowed to like, so we were allowed to have their posters on our walls but you couldn't go talking about how cute they were. If you wanted to talk about boy band boys who were cute, you had to talk about the, the Heil Sanderson tour group members. And then you'd have to track like who got engaged and man, like be sad when they got engaged <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, I actually, I find this kind of sweet, honestly, like, I mean, just, just the fact like that, that is very much just like a regular kid thing to do. Yeah. It's just fundy. 
It's like it's it's like it's it, this is like I feel like this is one of the most normal things. Well, I feel like that's what Grace is talking about when she talks about learning from my story and becoming more empathetic because of it because I I want to call out abuses in the IFB strongly and loudly because that is a necessary part of telling my story. But I'm also I want to humanize the the regular guy fundy the regular fundy family because you may find their beliefs hateful and so do i you may find their practices despicable and so do i but they are there are there are many fundies who are not out there trying to actively harm other people they are deceived into living by a set of rules and practices that are that you know we don't believe are necessary and they're they're human beings trying to live life and i think there is so much space to be able to look at again not leaders in the movement not people who are abusers and predators like jack scop or dave hiles <laughs> allegedly um i mean it's not he, even allegedly anymore we know he did it we, dave hiles yeah, I know, but it hasn't been proven in court, and I don't want him to sue me because then I'd probably have to be in the same room as him, and that would suck. No, but so I'm not talking about leaders. I'm not talking about people who are actively predators or hurting other people, but the rank and file fundamentalists. I think there is so much space to look at a person like that and acknowledge hey, I think your beliefs about queer people and women are horrible. I think you've got some racism going on. I think the rules and standards that you live by are unnecessary, but I can still see you as a human being who is doing their best. And I can say, I think you're misguided, but I see you as a person. And that's really what I'm trying to do, because for me, this podcast is an anthropological look into an incredibly niche, isolated subculture that I grew up in and you didn't. And I think it's it's really neat to do the work of calling out the abuse and do the work of exposing the years of lies and the cover-up, but also to do that anthropological storytelling type work of this is the world that I grew up in and it is so foreign to the world that you grew up in and let me tell you about it. So back to the boy band thing real quick. Yes. Um, <laughs> I want to know, like, so what was your your favorite Hiles Anderson tour? Like, you know how there is like the the InSync versus uh, Backstreet Boys. What which one was yours? Uh, I'm looking up the different years of the tour group to see if I can find the exact ones. And I want to know which boy you had the crush on from the tour. I can't group. say his name on the podcast because he's still like super fundy. Is he like famous fundy, or is he just some guy who's like married now? He's just some guy who's who's married now, and I wouldn't want to make anybody uncomfortable. Okay. I think my year was the 2008 Highlander Singing Men. Hang on. It's the group that, it's the year that they did the song Let Freedom Ring. So these groups would change every year, right? Because people would, so if you were in, on a tour group at Hiles Anderson one year, you were not guaranteed to be on the same tour group the next year you could just not get picked again uh, or you could get picked again but put into a different group so 
sometimes people would stay with the same tour group for a couple of years, but there was a constant rotation of who was in what tour group and people would graduate and go off into ministry, whatever. So it it's very specific by years, but my favorite tour group, yeah, it was the 2008-2009 Highlanders Singing Men. And they had a CD called Let Freedom Ring. I've played clips from that on the podcast before when we've talked about Fundy Music, but if you look it up on YouTube, it's I think the whole album is on there. And so if it's 2008-2009, then you're like... 15 16 years old and you're mm-hmm. crushing 15 on a, and 16 yeah you're crushing on a dude who's like 18 19 20 21 yeah that age so that's not that's not weird that's just like crushing on a dude in a boy band yeah it's it's very uh, almost very normal it's extremely normal yeah it's, it's so that that's <laughs> uh i'm really glad you said that because i wouldn't have thought of that as being a normal part of my experience but it totally is no, like if you were, I mean, it, like it's it's not that different from being like a One Direction fan, or like I guess right. if it were were our age, you would be into like the Jonas Brothers. You would be in love with one of the Jonas Brothers, I guess. Um, yeah. Hi, Amy. <laughs> um, yeah. So thank you, know, you our, for that. Our listener, Amy, who I love, is a very big Jonas Brothers fan. You know, I I honestly I can't think of a single Jonas Brothers song. Um. I'm sorry. Uh wasn't my my bag during that era. Um so thank you for that question, Grace. Uh and we I hope uh Sadie answered it. Um now this is the end of this uh Q&A episode. A little bit of background info on the letter that I'm about to read. Um when we were doing our um episode for Valentine's Day about the the fundy sex influencers. My plan was and we, we were reviewing a lot of paul and morgan content um and one of the things that i heavily criticized them for and i do stand by this criticism because i think it's a, a valid and legitimate criticism is that their advice was often very vague and that they weren't willing to give any answers on something that would possibly be an awkward or unpleasant topic to talk about rather than just like something that Paul and Morgan can say, guys, make sure you're doing a good job at pleasuring your wife and like admonish people for not doing that while like backhandedly humble brag about the good job that he does at pleasuring his wife and and give very basic milk toast advice, but act like it's like really edgy and really like, oh, we're going there kind of advice. And that was my major criticism of them. And I stand by that criticism today because I have yet to see anything that really, you know, changes my mind about this. So I hatched a plan where I was going to see if I could write them a letter that would sound like it was written by a real fundamentalist or, or like a real like con- a Christian man to, to ask them a question, but to see if I could get them to answer this question on the show because it's like like a question that I believe that they should be needing to answer. Where with you fully freaked me out because you did such a good job of writing the Christianese in this. Yeah, I I, I can do that sometimes. It's like I, I do feel like sometimes there'll be like when I write something in Christianese, Sadie will be like, you need to change this word to that word, but otherwise you're good. But anyway, I wrote this letter to Paul and Morgan to see if I could get them to answer it on their show, and sadly, they did not. 
Um, but I think it's such funny content that it is extremely hilarious. And also, like, you're absolutely right. This is the sort of question that they should be able to answer honestly and appropriately if they are going to be Christian sex influencers. Right. And the the tack that I took with this was, I mean, maybe a couple of places in it. I went a little bit too, like, I, I hammed it up a little bit too much. But otherwise, other than that, I'm just like, if some, if they answered this question on the show and they did a good job of answering this question on the show, I would have fully said, you know what? To their credit, they gave a legitimate answer to this question. And I applaud them for doing that. But they didn't because I guess, I don't know. But I sent this question to their email. And this is, the, this is the email that I wrote. And it is, okay, a CW for light BDSM. Um, all hypothetical. All hypothetical. This is this is a entirely a, a, a fictional thing. If you have uh, children listening, maybe just skip yeah. to the end of the episode. <laughs> Not um, for kids. <laughs> Dear Paul and Morgan, I love your content. It has helped me prepare myself for a godly marriage, and I am so thrilled that you started doing a sex Q and A series because I have so many questions that I've never been able to ask before. And then in parentheses, sorry to write you anonymously, but this is an embarrassing question. I think that's a, a, a good intro. Um, and so my question, this, this is what I wrote. I wrote, I am a Christian man who over Christmas got married to a wonderful woman. She is the love of my life, and I am so grateful that God brought us together. How's my uh, Christianese? right now so far so good so far so good okay so i went on to say when we got married she had had sex in previous relationships but not since getting saved and becoming a christian and i love her and accept her as she is when we were on our honeymoon she made a few requests that i was not prepared for she asked me to choke her during our lovemaking and say certain degrading phrases to her that do not truly represent how I feel about her. As a Christian man, I was taught to love and cherish my wife, not to hurt or degrade her in any way. At the same time, I am worried that if I cannot satisfy this desire of hers, that she will be unhappy. My question is this, what does the Bible say about choking in a Christian marriage? <laughs> Just a note, you need to go back to right before you start this and do a CW for light BDSM. But I, I wrote that question to them. Um, they never answered it. Um, I think maybe like the like up to the last sentence, I think I did a good job. But when I said, what does the Bible say about choking in a Christian marriage? I think that may have been like one step too far. I maybe should have, we, we maybe should have edited it to what is the Christian view of this sort of activities in marriage? Do you think that, okay, because I, I, I get that. I don't that. know. I I thought, I mean, I've been out of the game for a while, but I thought this was incredibly well done Christianese. And I wrote this, I, I wrote this and sent this to you. And then I said, okay, well, actually, I'm going to do a revised version. And you were just like, no, that's perfect. No, it was, I thought the Christianese was was spot on and i stand by what i said in our valentine's day episode this could they it would be so easy 
for them to answer this in a way that is conscientious and appropriate and consent focused and basically just say that God would never want you to harm your partner, but a temporary temporary pain is not always harm. This is only appropriate to do if both people consent. So if you don't feel enthusiastic about this activity, it's fine to give it a try for your wife's sake because she does feel enthusiastic. But if you don't enjoy it or you don't want to do it long term, your consent matters too. And to pray about it and uh, speak, you know, have more conversations with your wife. This is a great way to build communication between you as a couple. Maybe you can find a compromise that both of you are excited and con and enthusiastic about. See, the thing here is that I think the thing like that's, there's yeah. Go ahead. I think the thing that's getting in the way of them saying something like that is that much of the language that is focused around consent and the, the way that people talk about consent is language that Paul and Morgan would deem as woke. And therefore they won't be able to use any of those terms going forward. They have to find unwoke terms to talk about things that they want to, to do or just ignore the topic altogether. And that's a problem. That's a huge problem. Yeah, I'm like word searching the King James right now to see if I can find a couple different terms that I'm looking for. I'm looking for the word mutual. I'm looking for a way to like proof text. Hold on, I'm almost there. Okay, so you could say I'm gonna I'm gonna read King James, so additional CW for that. So you could read Hebrews thirteen four, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. And then also go to Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And you could combine that with my whole, which I think is completely a, an appropriate Christian view, like God would never want you to harm your partner, but a temporary discomfort or pain is not harm. And you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So you are to sacrifice yourself for your wife. Therefore, her request is something that you should at least consider as long as what she's asking for is not a sin, i.e. causing any kind of harm or injury to her. And you could say, like, you can't say, if you can't say consent because consent is too woke, you could say something about, like, sex within a Christian marriage is always for the mutual edification of both partners. Like, that, that would be maybe the Christianese translation for mutual consent or if instead of saying both partners you have to say husband and wife right the other thing right. is the the other thing that i'm thinking about i think that the term harm might be woke now oh. you can't say harm because harm when, when it comes to harm you know that's when people are talking about harm reduction and harm reduction is woke because you know that's a uh you can't be having that you know or whenever people are talking about this harms this community, that's what the woke people talk about. So you can't say harm anymore. Could, harm can you say damage? Damage? Maybe. Um, Maybe that's not super woke. Damage. See that you have to find a word that is like. You have to find a word that's in scripture. Yeah. So what's a synonym for harm that's in the King James? Uh, where's the. Here's a Bible verse. 
Okay, so it looks like damage is used as a synonym for harm in the King James, like Genesis 26, 29, that you will do us no damage, even as we put no hand on you and did you nothing but good, uh, or Genesis 31, 20, 31, 7. Both of those look like they're from the story of Joseph. But your father has not kept faith with me, and ten times has he made changes in my payment, but God has kept him from doing me damage. Okay, so you could say damage. You could, So you could say yeah. you can't do damage to your wife yeah yeah okay well okay well that's good so to i think there i think that if they were just willing to go on google for two seconds they could come up with a completely appropriate answer to that question that prioritizes consent without saying the word consent because it's too woke and gives a nice middle of the road answer that wouldn't make so many people mad yeah but they didn't do that and I think, I honestly, I think that what does the Bible say about choking in a Christian marriage is a little bit too much of a meme at this point to, because yeah. like the, um, I mean, it's, it's like, what does the Bible say about blank in a Christian marriage is at this point at the meme level of, uh, God honoring fill in the blank right. when you're talking about anything that Bethany Beale does. Uh, so I think that's that's about it for this episode. Do we have anything else that we want to talk about before we uh, before we finish? I think no. I think we're good. I think this is this episode has been really fun. Yeah, I've um, and I I just want to say, Sadie, thank you so much for uh, bravely speaking about where you are spiritually now, because I know that you had a lot of reticence to to really put that out there and and go forward and do it because you were afraid of what people were going to say about it and and. How people are I just react I to really it. feel like I'm in a very lonely place because people who are believers want me to also be a believer. People who are not believers also want me to not be a believer. And nobody's happy with me being in a middle ground. And I feel like it's going to make people additionally mad that I'm happy in a middle ground, that I am not trying to leave a middle ground anytime soon. But we'll see. We've thought before in the past that we would make people incredibly angry with something that we said. And a lot of those times it's turned out fine. So I guess we'll find out. Yeah. And also, I feel like I don't know how different it is to people saying, oh, I wish Sadie would deconstruct fully and become an atheist. How is that? I mean, I, I feel like that's very different from saying, I wish Ginger Duggar would drop the homophobic beliefs that she has uh, now that she's a follower of John Piper. I, I feel like that's different. I feel but, like that's very different. But I, I, you know, I understand that people, a lot of people need to feel like they're like they're right. And that goes for believers and non-believers. Um, and I feel like I'm right. So I'm not really in a position to criticize people who need to feel that they're right. And people like me as the host of this show. So people who like me want to feel like I'm right. And if they believe that they're right, that means they want me to agree with them. I don't think that's um, super toxic or makes you a horrible person. Um, I, I appreciate everybody who listened to my own explanation of my beliefs. And again, I hope I didn't make you that mad. Well, also, I think it's interesting because I come from a culture that just doesn't do apologetics. Because Jewish people, we just don't do it. It's just not something mm -hmm. that, that we even engage with, really. So often when we interact with 
Christians on like people raised very much in Christian culture. It's the thing that they always lead with is I know what I believe. Mm -hmm. I know what I believe and I believe in this and it's backed up by X, Y, Z in the Bible. And then that's what they lead with. And everything comes like following behind that. And so for you to come up here and say, I think I know what I believe, but I'm not sure in a lot of ways. I do believe that if you're coming at it from that, from that way of thinking, then they might say, oh, well, she doesn't know what she believes. How can she be sure mm -hmm. of anything? How is she a person? Oh, I'm that, not. Yeah. Like that's, I'm not sure. I've accepted not being sure, and I'm pretty okay with that. I think another thing that you wouldn't necessarily know is that it's very taboo in Christian culture to just, like, make it up for yourself. Like, it needs, your beliefs need to come from your church denomination, a specific theologian, or a specific interpretation of scripture. Huh. And that's kind of the acceptable places to get your beliefs from. And getting them from a mixture of all of those things from all over the place and also your own logic and your own moral values is incredibly taboo. It's just very much not done in Christian culture. That's a problem, though, because huh? everything that, well, because everything that you said about it seemed to me like it was very reasonable. And I think that there's probably a lot of people who listen to the show and who heard what you said. And they probably think, well, that sounds very reasonable and that, you know, that probably makes a lot of sense with what I believe. And that's what people would say. But I, I do think that like, um, cause when we do interact with people who are Christian on the internet, who have specific things that they believe about, um, this or that or the other thing, they can very much come across and say, well, what is your doctrine so that I can like, it's very much like the mm -hmm. speech and debate method of going about, uh, of like, doing apologetics because it's like okay you line up your five main points of what you believe i'll line up my five main points of what i believe and we'll see who's can withstand the test of fire and what are your doctrinal point and then you know it, it's just like come on now and that it, and that's just why i you know for me being a person that just doesn't do apologetics and then comes from a, a culture that doesn't do apologetics to me that just doesn't like it's also a really big thing to um, be able to put a name on your beliefs, uh, like Calvinist or Anabaptist or Reformed or Amillennial or whatever. And I don't get a lot of good out of being able to do it. Like I can say, oh, I am a, what, what would I say? I am a humanist Christian. Like I could say I'm a humanist Christian or I'm a humanist Christian and I'm a preterist. And I'm also, you know, I can, I can put theological terms to a lot of the different parts that I believe, but it just doesn't do me a lot of good personally. It doesn't edify me personally. That makes sense. It's it, to me, it's like, um, and I know I talk about this from time to time is when you like, say you go on social media, you go on Twitter or something. Um, and you run into people who are very much into like the politics Twitter and they'll have various policy positions and ideologies in their bio. So that like to or worse, just a list of emojis that and you're supposed to know like, oh, the red rose means this and the blue butterfly means something else. And like, <laughs> yeah, and I don't know what any of them mean. So then I try to Google it and I get even more confused or like if you're looking at somebody's dating profile 
and their dating profile has like INFTPJ, like whatever the fuck that is. And I'm like, I don't, I don't remember. Like it has their, their Higgs boson and it has their, uh, astrology. Myers-Briggs. What? Higgs boson is something else. It's the Myers-Briggs. Okay. Yeah. It has their Myers-Briggs and it has their astrology sign and it has their, uh, introvert or extrovert. It says that they, you know, this that the other and like i'm just like just tell me like three things about yourself that you that are like three facts or interests that you have that are possible things that if i match with you i could start a conversation with you about and talk to you about one of these three things that's what i want i don't need like a like a resume but i do feel like like i i enjoy reality tv and i hate pickles yeah well, cool. I like some reality TV. I love pickles. I, does that make us incompatible because I like pickles and you don't? Like, why? No, that's fantastic because that means that you can eat my pickles. Yeah. See, I mean, there you go. I don't know. I, I just don't... Fe- I For me, I just don't really see the point in debating these things, but there's a lot of people out there who do just want... Who, like, they get a certain amount of glee out of debating things. And they're that's, like, how they... That's like what they do for fun. And I'm like, that's what I really enjoy about not being convinced that I'm right because I can watch other people get super into it over some specific doctrinal point and really enjoy it because I'm not trying to figure out who's correct unless somebody is being hateful or an awful person or just a jerk i don't have a horse in the game so people are having a a conversation about some doctrinal thing and i'm just oh that's really interesting oh that's an interesting point yeah (laughs) neat so i was a rhetoric and media studies major in college and by the way thank you all for subscribing to our patreon because we're just going way off the rails on this one um but i was a rhetoric and media studies major in college and i took i took a couple debate classes which I thought were interesting classes just to learn like the, the styles of debate and, and all of those things. Ultimately, that thing really wasn't for me and I wasn't that interested in it because I didn't necessarily like the combative nature. I really don't like the idea that like, here's one person arguing one thing, here's one person arguing the other thing, and at the end, a judge is going to say, you're right and you're wrong. Like that's to me, or like you argued it better and you argued it like th- to me, that doesn't really do it. But like, you know, I would hang out with somebody who was um who was into that like you know i would hang out with people from my major and sometimes you they just like turn to you and they just say some shit like what do you think's worse ice or isis and i'm just like i don't fucking know but they they'd be like well debate me on it and i'm like no i like i (laughs) the thing is that question doesn't matter because both are bad right and we do not have to pick one to dislike. Yeah, it's just like, oh my god, like, is this what you do for fun? No, absolutely the fuck not. Like, that doesn't sound like fun to me. Why would I just, like, just, like, I, I don't know. There is a certain amount of, like, um, and it's usually dudes that like to, it's usually men that like to, to do this, is to, they liking to argue with people so that they can feel like they're intellectually superior to other people if they beat them in argument. Oh, my my brothers once had an extended hours-long debate on what is more essential to the survival of the human race, 
hot dogs or Abraham Lincoln? No, hot dogs or showers is what it was. Hot dogs versus showers. Hot hot dogs versus showers. I mean, I'm team showers. I was an impartial observer. And I cannot remember which brother that means you agree with because they were literally like 11 and 13 at the time. But like how, how heated did they get? Extremely. They don't fight like that anymore. I mean, you, like you could be vegan and you'd be fine. But if you don't shower, then no one's going to want to hang out with you. Well, it devolved into a debate about food versus bodily cleanliness. Yeah, but hot dogs isn't food. Hot dogs. Yeah, well, there's other foods other than hot dogs, and there's other ways to clean yourself other than showers. Yeah, sure. I could lick myself, give myself a cat bath. It can be kind of dog whistly when somebody says, oh, I don't want that kind of negativity in my life, because sometimes what people are referring to when they say they don't want any negativity in their life is like, oh, I don't want to have a conversation about police brutality or vaccines or something really important like that oh i just i don't engage in politics i don't like the negativity and that's obviously problematic but when i say that i don't want negativity in my life i mean what i do not want to see is people fighting about what's worse ice or isis yeah because that is that is unproductive unlike a conversation about race racial justice or reproductive justice justice or something that actually can be changed and helps people that is what's worse this bad thing or this other bad thing and that when i say i don't want negativity in my life that is what i'm talking about i'm with you there anyway thank you guys for subscribing to our patreon um and we're just yeah I, you know i think we should start doing this every week where we do like a uh yeah and i mean it's it it, it doesn't really end up getting edited and if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, you can join our uh, Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash group slash Eden Exodus. You can join our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. And there is a very extended version of today's episode on the Patreon where we make fun of Bethany Beal's playlists. Uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Um, we do love you guys so much, and we do really appreciate you guys for listening to our show, um, especially when we go in these long episodes. Um, you can follow our podcast on social media, our Facebook and Instagram, and uh, TikTok is Leaving Eden Podcast. On Twitter, it is at Leaving Eden Pod. Sadie, your socials? You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie, and on tiktok at sadie carpenter one and you can follow me on facebook instagram and twitter at g-a-v-r-i-e-l-h-a-c-o-h-e-n thank you guys so much for tuning in you guys have a great day bye bye